0: The exciting part is you get to watch them grow up. And remember, remember that day we prayed for them? Look at them go. Man, God's good. If you'd open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, we're going to read together this morning from verse 27. And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of my name's sake. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. So Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you that today, Even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke all the more vehemently, If I have to die with you, yet I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, Not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, for my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you this morning, God, and We look at the text before us, Father, we pray that you would move in our midst in a mighty way. God, that you would help us to see and to recognize your perfect touch in and through our lives. Father, that you might be glorified in this place. Lord, that we could see, know, and understand the purpose of the garden. That we might grow thereby. And Lord, we lift this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's interesting to me because as we, as we come to, to this section of Scripture and as we, we deal with the text that's before us this morning, many may say, Wow, that doesn't sound very Christmassy, Jackie. <laughs> um, but I think it's better we remember really, what's going on with Christmas. Because I think we separate Christmas from Easter so far that God never had those two things separated. When the Bible talks about Jesus Christ and His incarnation, that He comes down from heaven and He reveals who God is to us, in that incarnation, the Scripture tells us this mystery, that He was crucified from the foundation of the world. That's a while before His incarnation. See, when, when God, through the Apostle John, spoke those incredible words that we often cling to in John 3.16, when He said that God so loved the world, that what did He do? He gave, right? He gave. It's one of the incredible things about this season. It's, it's supposed to be a giving season, right? He gave. His one and only Son... That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, when we look at that, don't d- divorce it from what that scripture is pointing to. How is it that God was going to save people through faith? That when people put their trust on, on Jesus Christ, how was he going to accomplish that? Through the cross. It's one of the amazing things, right? When we look at the, the gifts of the Magi, we'll, we'll probably talk about that some on, on Christmas Eve, but when we look at the gifts of the Magi, and they, they came offering them three things, right? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Gold, that's a gift for a king. Frankincense, that's a gift for a priest. Myrrh, that's what you use to anoint the dead. It's not interesting, That those were the gifts they chose to bring? That they chose to give to the Savior, who later on, John would declare when he saw Him walking by, John the Baptist would say, Behold what? The Lamb of God? Now, in a Jewish mind, what is the Lamb for? Sacrifice. So to, to give someone the title, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, don't divorce it from what they're saying. The perfect sacrifice that has come. Because I think we focus, and I I don't want us to get away from it, because it's true that the incarnation and the gift of the the child that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures that we read earlier, that is an incredible part of the gift, but that's only a, a part of it. The real gift is that God is redeeming men. That's the gift. It just began with the child. But God's redeeming. God's taken all us broken knuckleheads and He's provided for us a sacrifice that can take us from a place of brokenness and restore us to being whole. I find all these things interesting when we, when we start studying through the Word and we start picking things off. And you guys have probably heard before, right? When people talk about the number seven, what do they call the number seven? Perfection or completion, right? It's a, the number that, that often is used in terms of God. Right? Perfect understanding, perfect knowledge. Number seven comes up over and over again. And then there's another number used for men. What's the the number used for men? Six. So we got the number six. Well, what's the problem with six? Well, the primary problem with six is it's not seven. (laughs) That six indicates a form of brokenness. So Jesus came and He taught and He said, as He was walking by the temple one day with His disciples, He said... I am the vine, you are the branches. branches. Do you understand that when he says that, what he's talking about is, as you would look all over, uh, when you come with us to Israel, you'll get a chance to see it, all over, engraved in the stone, all around Jerusalem are menorahs. You guys seen the menorah, right? The seven branch candle Do you know what that's made up of? One vine, six branches. One vine, six branches. When is man made whole? When he's attached to the vine. Because when he's attached to the vine, man becomes seven, complete. Well, what makes us complete? Not our job, not our money, not our cars, not our place where we live. Not any of that stuff. What makes us complete is being attached to the vine. That we are in Christ. That we are attached to Him. And so as as the Lord so long ago through the prophet Isaiah said, Look, this will be a sign to you. That I'm coming to redeem. That I'm going to change everything. This will be the sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. That's a good sign, right? It's not a lot of that going on. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. Isaiah, just two chapters later, says, a child is born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is what? Given. What's he talking about? But you realize that the whole thing Isaiah is saying in chapter 9 is what he said in chapter 7. He said, look, it's going to be a gift. It's going to be a gift from God. God does it. He gives it. Everything. The child's birth, the child coming. In fact, so much so, back in Isaiah 7, he says he's going to have a name that he shall be called. It's a name that he's going to refer to himself as. It's not a name that everyone else is going to call him. It's a name he's going to call himself. Emmanuel. which means God with us God in the flesh so I want you to see that the perfect place to really grapple with the concept of what God's doing in the redemption of mankind is in the garden because that's where we can see it beginning it's it's it had its 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 ultimate beginning long in the past but we see the inception this is it this is a night Judas is on his way he's about to put a kiss on him he's about to go to the cross about to be crucified He's about to experience the one thing that, that he, uh, if, there's, if, if he knows fear, the only thing that he would be afraid of. That's why the garden is so incredible a place to, to come and to look. But I want you to see what happens in the beginning. The meal ends, right? They finish the meal, they're leaving. They're now walking from Jerusalem over to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And as they're walking, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's a quotation from Zechariah. I think it's Zechariah chapter 13. That quotation from Zechariah is God the Father speaking. I will strike the shepherd. This is not plan B. This is not some radical switch in what's going on. This was the purpose for which the gift was given. Because when we look at the attributes of God, everybody wants to talk about the love of God. Everybody wants to talk about different things, the the attributes we like. You know the ones we avoid? Wrath. But do you realize that it's impossible to be a God of love without being a God of wrath? It has to be that way. Why? Why? Because if you love something, then you're going to hate when something hurts or or damages that which you love. Aren't you? So one of the attributes of God, not, not some weird emotion he has, one of his attributes is wrath. And the wrath of God needs to be appeased because mankind, according to Romans chapter 1, was under the wrath of God. They were under his wrath, awaiting judgment. Man couldn't save himself. Man couldn't get himself out. So, what had to happen was the wrath of God had to be poured out on an innocent. When there's a problem and nobody's innocent, everybody's born broken. So, God said, This is how I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. This child will be the child of the Holy Spirit, not the child of man. And like Adam in the beginning, he will be born without a sin nature. He'll be tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. It's the only way he could be the sacrifice, he has to be perfectly innocent. So that, that thing which we don't think about or consider too much, that wrath of God, I, you know, it, it, uh, it probably boggles our mind a little bit if we could just get a sense of it. That seeing what the wrath of God is, how God sees sin, how God recognizes the, the, the fallen nature, the, the just desire of God to pour out that wrath, that's all going to be put on His one... And only son. That's Christmas. That Jesus Christ. Is going to bear the wrath of God. That belongs to us. So that we. Could enjoy. The relationship with God. That he had. He paves that way, and as they're on their way and as they're thinking about it, Jesus says, "Look, this is all part of God's plan. God's going to do this as we're going, and all you guys are going to scatter. And what do they do? The same stuff we do. Oh, not me. Everybody else, maybe, but not me." And that what Peter says? Well, he's not the only one, doesn't it say they all vehemently continue to say, "No, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Now I'm not going to take a poll this morning because I don't want to give you an opportunity to lie in church so I'm not going to do that but let's just realize the reality of this we are all inconsistent in our walk with Christ yes or no we are all inconsistent we all struggle we are all just like those disciples walking over to the garden that Jesus is saying "In a minute things are going to get real and you guys are going to scatter but he's not condemning them is he? He's not condemning them. He's just telling them. Why is he telling them that? He says, now, he lets them know the whole drill, right? Let's look at it. He lets them know the whole drill. But after I have been raised, which means he's going to die, right? It's kind of, you know, hard to be raised if you're not dead. That doesn't count. So he says, I'm going to be raised. After I'm raised, then then we're going to meet up. Right? I'm gonna go before you in Galilee. We'll meet there. But they don't hear none of that. All they hear is, no, I don't mess up. No, I'm not broken. No, I don't need what you're offering me. I can do it on my own. That we don't never say that, do we? That's what the garden's all about. Man, come to the garden. To that place where Jesus showed us the way to tap in to the power necessary. That's all in the garden. Well, the Bible tells us, in verse 32 it says, Then they came to the place, in the Hebrew called Gethsemane, to Gethsemane. And we see this incredible time of prayer that Jesus takes us to. And if we're honest, we all struggle with that, huh? We struggle with the whys and the whats. And sometimes, to be honest, we are a little spoiled. Okay, we're probably a lot spoiled. Mm -hmm. We're very selfish. We're definitely in need of redemption, right? Life is kind of a mess. We need some redemption in our life. We look at prayer and we, we want to know what, what prayer accomplishes. Well, what's it going to do? We're just like the disciples on the way to Gethsemane saying, "I you know, I don't really need this, this thing that you're telling me about Jesus. I don't need that. I got this by myself. I'm good enough to take care of that." And really, that's how we face most of our problems. No? Most of our problems, when do we go to prayer? In the, in the beginning, when we first see Him on the horizon? No, we go to Him in the end. And somewhere along the line, we may find ourselves in a place where we're questioning the purpose of prayer. You know, we talk about the sovereignty of God. And we talk about the fact that that God's going to uh, uh, accomplish His will, God's doing His will. And then we look at prayer and we say, well, what does prayer do? Does, does prayer move the hand of God or change the hand of God? And, and, and what's happening? And we can ask the question, well, what, what if, if if my prayer is not going to change my circumstances, why pray? Ever felt that way? If it's not going to, if by my praying, God's not going to heal me, why should I pray? Well, how about, because he tells you to. But it's not going to change my circumstances, why should I do it? How about, because he tells you to. Because he says, Pray. Over and over and over. When we look at it and we say, but I don't understand. If my prayer is not going to accomplish something for me, what's the point? Maybe that's it. Maybe the point is for you to stop thinking so much about yourself. And start being or living a God-centered life. That says, you know God, I forgot to report for duty. What are you doing in my life? What what just being an open vessel before the Lord in prayer. God, where'd I go? Where do I be? Who where I don't I don't know what to do. Isn't it okay to go there like that? Hmm. We'll see some interesting things as we take a look, but let's as we work our way through, let's just see what Jesus shows us about prayer and about that purpose for which he came. Verse 32, they came to the place, Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here. Now don't forget the disciples. What have they been doing? They had a long dinner, right? They had a long day. Long dinner. Usually Passover meal had to be completed by midnight. Then at midnight, just want you to picture this, they walked a couple of miles from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And then they sit down in the cool of the evening and they, it's dark everywhere. And their back's up against an olive tree. And they're thinking, oh man, that feels good just to sit down for a minute. And then Jesus says, hey, will you pray with me for an hour? How's that prayer usually work out for you? Any different than how it works out for them? Maybe not. Maybe not. Let's look what it says. First thing that we can recognize in this is we see the agony of Christ. Look at that agony. It says... <clears throat> he took Peter, James, and John and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Now, these words are interesting. The word for troubled uh, means or has come to mean overcome with horror or terror. And uh, uh, um, I think part of the reason that we're going to see this um, in the life of Christ is because he's going to go to his Father, from whom has always been expressed this relationship of love. Right? Eternally. And he's going to see, like, a glimpse, maybe a moment of sh- whatever, of wrath. That's what's coming. Look, it's not the whips he's afraid of, or the cross, or the physical torment. We've seen men like you and I be tortured and die victorious deaths. Having some perfect one-liner to say at the last moment. History's full of them. It's not about the physical things that were taking place, it's about the spiritual reality of looking into the wrath of God from his father. But there's something interesting about that word trouble. The etymology, which is the, the idea from whence that word sprang. It, it springs forth into existence out of the concept of. Being homesick. That word troubled. It, it comes from being homesick. Being away from home a long time. Just kind of put in your mind this, this idea. That the, the, the horror has taken place, but in the heart of Christ, don't you think he was being a, a little homesick about this time to be with in heaven again? To be with his Father? To experience what he had? In John 17, he prays that I could have the glory that we had before the world began. I, I think... I don't know about you, I get a little homesick for heaven, don't you? I mean, every time I do a funeral, one more person goes ahead, and I have more reason to be there than I have to be here. Because there's people I love and care about that are before me in that place. It causes us to be a little homesick. He's also deeply distressed. That word is is a word that means astonished, blown away. So he's blown away at this concept of of horror that I think is entering into his heart as a result of looking for communion with his Father. How many times had Jesus spent the night or the morning seeking the Father in prayer? Just about every day, right? Every day. This day is no different. It just happens to be the last night before the Passion of the Christ. Happens to be that last moment, and so as he looks to him, but what is it that God's word tells us? If you're suffering, if you're afraid, if you're struggling, what does God's word tell us to do? Solve it yourself, take care of it your own self, you know, it's not that big a deal. Buck up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that's a famous uh, American saying, right? What does that mean? That's that's the biggest problem with America right now. She is so busy trying to pull herself up by her bootstraps. She won't get on her knees before the God and Savior of the world and beg his forgiveness. Well, he, they don't want to do that because that requires humility. So, they don't want to do that. What does the Bible say in James 5:13? Is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Let him pray. Commune with the Father. Let him pray. What was the attitude of Jesus? Look what the word says. He went a little farther, and what did he do? Fall on the ground. Fall on the ground. He's on his face. It's a son of God. That doesn't boggle your mind. He is full on prostrate on the ground. Crying out to the Lord. If scripture's gonna tell us, he's so uh, he's so moved by the events that are coming and what he's feeling and what he's sensing that the Bible says he sweats what? Great drops of blood. Right? That's it's a heavy night. That never happened to me. He's he's looking at what he's facing, but what does it what does it drive him to? The Father. It drives him to the Father. Where does it drive us to? Does it only drive us to the Father if we've got a promise that it's going to work out the way we think it should? Because be careful, you know the rest of this story, don't you? He goes to the Father. Matthew 26, 39 says, He went a little farther fell on His face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you As we look at this, we see his agony. He's troubled. We see his attitude. He's on his face in humility. He's troubled. The Word of God says, go to the Father. That's exactly what he does. He goes to the Lord. So what's the meaning? What's the meaning of this prayer, this moment that Christ has with his Father, facing probably the hardest thing that anyone's ever had to... I don't even know if there's anything we could even compare. So as he's coming to this place... He went a little farther, fell on the ground, and prayed, as it were. Prayed that if it were possible, the, the hour might pass from him. When we talk about the hour and the cup, I just want you to recognize, both are the same thing. The hour and the cup is the same thing. Described in different ways, different metaphors. The cup, obviously, throughout Scripture is used as the cup of the wrath of God. God's wrath is held in that cup, uh, and and symbolized the concept of drinking up that wrath, receiving God's wrath. The hour is the moment in which that's all going to take place. And so as we, as we look at it, I just want you to see how he begins his prayer. So he said, what's the first word? Abba. Everybody, That's an Aramaic word, right? You remember what it means, Aramaic? It's a very uh, endearing term. It's like uh, what we would hear from our, our little ones saying, Papa or Daddy. Now just hold that for a minute. That should not be too shocking for us, should it? Don't you remember Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Or Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gibor. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is it any wonder that when Jesus looked up to heaven, he would speak to the Father, Abba, Papa, Daddy? Just get the view. there's the father looking down on his beloved son. And the son looking up to his father saying, Daddy, Daddy, this is hard. Daddy, this is a tough place to be. Daddy, is there any other way? That's the gift of Christmas. Just feel the emotion of what that would, what that was, what that is like. The first thing he does after he says, Daddy, looking up to his father, is he acknowledges God's power. He says, All things are possible for you. Isn't that what he says? God, I know you can do anything you want. The scripture tells us one of the attributes of God is His omnipotence. He has all power to do whatever He wants to do within His character. He can do all things. So Jesus acknowledges that. He acknowledges the fact that He has the power. And then He makes this request. His request that this hour... This hour. But I just want you to notice something at the beginning of the prayer. The very, very beginning. He went a little farther, fell on the ground, verse 35, and prayed that if it were possible. You see that phrase? If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The reason God chose to to transmit his word to us in the Koine Greek, is because it, it has the ability to transmit exact thought for us. In fact, when we look at the word if in the Greek, it is constructed in four classifications. Four different classifications. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to give you a test about Greek after this. I just want to tell you, this particular classification, the way that the, the word if is constructed in this sentence means, I know it's not possible if it is possible but I know it's not so it's not a desire from Jesus saying look I don't want to do this as, uh, as much as he's, he's looking look I know this is the road I know this is the purpose I know this is the plan I just wish there was a different way There was another way to accomplish this, that that the hour might pass him by. But look in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 9, here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say to us. Who, speaking of Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication and vehement cries and tears. So what's the writer of Hebrews talking about? The garden, right? He's talking about the garden. He's talking about this prayer that we're looking at. So when he had offered up prayers and supplication and vehement cries and tears unto him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear, because of his reverence, because of his life. He's heard. It means God answered his prayer. That's kind of a crazy concept, isn't it? How do you do that? Well, I think the answer is right here in Hebrews. We back up just a minute and let's take a look at that again. It says, who was able to save him from? That word from literally means out of. There are the the word speaks ek of being being saved out of. What What is he being saved out of? Well, the next word is death. Literally, it's the dead ones. Being saved out of the dead ones. So he's he's crying and he's praying and he's calling to God to save him out from the dead ones. When was that prayer answered? When he rose from the dead. He was heard. Which was God's purpose. He was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience, how? by the things he suffered. Let me ask you a question. If that's true of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is it less true of you and I?? Was it... If that's something that, that he did, keep in mind, what does Jesus do when he calls his disciples? What does he ask them to do? Come and do what? Come and follow me, you know? Come and follow me. You know where he was going, right? He was going to the cross. He was going to the garden. He was going to this time of prayer. He was going through a period of suffering. It wasn't eternal. He becomes an example for you and I. So that we can learn from that which he has accomplished. So that we can learn from it all. So what was his response? What's Jesus' response as he's praying this prayer? As he's reaching out to God? As he's looking up to him? He says this, nevertheless, what? Not what I will. Your will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. In Hebrews ten nine, it says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. What did Jesus say? Only the words the, words the Father gives me, that's what I say. Only the things the Father asks me to do, that's what I do. Was Jesus not equal with the Father? Sure, the Word of God very clearly teaches that He was equal with the Father. Yet He was in a position of submission. That really shouldn't be that difficult for us. It's really not difficult for me. I took orders from a lot of guys when I was in the Marine Corps that were made of the same stuff I'm made of. If they got shot, they bled just like I would. But I followed orders because they were in authority. I submitted myself to their authority. Otherwise, it don't work. It don't work. So I submit myself to their authority. They direct and and they move. And so I understand being the same essence, yet having a different role. And so here Jesus is, is laying out for us, look, this is the plan. This is the purpose from the beginning of the foundation of the world that the way God was going to give Christmas to the people was to fix their brokenness. And their brokenness wasn't fixed when the child laid in a the manger. Their brokenness wasn't fixed when the child was nailed to the cross. Their brokenness wasn't fixed even when that child rose from the dead. When all of those things came together... When the wrath of God was satisfied. And the Father brought the Son up into heaven. We read about it in Daniel chapter 7. One, the Son of Man comes up before the Lord God. In chapter 16, I think. No, not 16. 1462, we're going to see it. Jesus points to that same event. When the Father says to the Son of Man, Sit here till I make your enemies. Your footstool. Yeah, it's done. They're redeemed. Now it just waits to see who will take the gift. Most of the time, this time of year, we don't have a hard time taking gifts, do we? If somebody hands you a gift, is that difficult for you to receive? Because God the Father, for the last 2,000 years, has had his hands out. I have a gift. I redeem your life. My son paid the price so you could be whole. He bore the wrath. Look, you, you want to bear your own wrath? That's not a party. You can read about it. The book of Revelation talks about that particular day. That particular day when man bears his own wrath... It says that the the sea and the grave give up the dead and the dead stand before a great white throne and they're judged by the things that they did in their life and whether or not their name is written where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. And if their name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what happens? Wrath of God. Jesus bore that wrath. He took that wrath upon himself. And on this night, as he cries out to God, looking at that moment for the wrath and being greatly troubled in his soul and recognizing, I can't really go away from it, but man, I really need it. What's he doing this for? What's this whole event for? For you and me. Because we got our time in the garden too. Don't we? We just did a baby dedication this morning. This is a that's a pretty happy thing by the way but wasn't all that long ago we were anointing with oil and praying that, that cancer would be uh, healed by God wasn't all that long ago wasn't all that long ago when that relationship was in the garden wondering how things were going to come out Yeah, you and I we don't always get a fast forward ahead and say hey how's it look It's good now, today. Is that a guarantee it's good tomorrow? We all got our garden. What is Jesus telling us? When you feel that, when you're troubled, when you're going through hard things, don't run to all these other things. Don't think about how you're going to solve it to yourself. Go before the Father and speak the same words He did. Submit. Be humble before God. Lay out before Him and say, God, I'm Yours. There's a purpose you're doing here. There's a plan that's being worked out. And I'm not the center of the universe. You are. Don't you know that when we come to God that way, He promised to give us strength for the journey? Don't you know when we come to God that way, He heals? Don't you know when we come to God that way, He moves? Yes. One way or the other. What is it that God's looking for from me and you? I believe what God's looking for from me is a willingness to get on my face before Him, that I'm not the end all, be all, that He is, and just submit, just lay out, just God. God your will when the disciples came to him and said man Jesus we like the way you pray will you teach us you remember how it started our father interesting word you know the book of Hebrews tells us that by adoption we can also cry out what was the word Jesus started with Abba right Oh, Jesus is authentic he's the real deal you and I were adopted that's okay I'll, I'll take that. We're adopted into the family of God, heirs and joiners, heirs together with Christ. That's an incredible place to be. So we're in that place. We can say, Abba! Just like he did. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will done. On earth. Like it is in heaven. Do we remember that prayer? Your will on earth like it is in heaven. It's not me. God, what is it that you're doing? I just need to have that moment. It's so powerful, guys, when you have that moment on your face before God. It's a powerful place to be. You want to look and see how powerful that place is? Look at David. When David caught in the act of sin with Bathsheba and God brought his judgment and the child is born and the child is sick. Where was David? On his face before God. And I guarantee you, you get to heaven and you walk up to David and you say, David, I just want to know, what was that time like when you're on your face on the ground praying? I guarantee you, you're going to hear some of the same statements we're reading. Your will, God, be done. I don't always know what that is. And I ain't afraid to ask. Bible tells us that that's okay. I can ask, can I? I can ask, I can do those things. So, what's the message to us as we look at this? Look at it says in verse 37 He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch an hour? Can we do it ourselves? What did Paul say in Romans chapter 7? The things that I don't want to do, I do those. And the things I don't want to do, those are the dumb things I keep practicing. i got I to find a way. Where's that, where's that found? Where's that power? Where's the power to do what Jesus did? What is His example to us? It's not because He's God. It's because He was totally submitted to the Father. He was... Utterly and completely submitted, and what empowered him is the same that empowers us, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, no the holy Spirit what, what did jesus say these things you 've seen me do, and greater that 's not only talking about miracles these things you 've seen me do and greater you can do. so if Jesus can pray, if he can be filled by the Holy Spirit and empowered to be humble and to, and to have Just the right attitude as he goes before the Father, you're saying that can't be possible for you? That's not what the Bible says. And the Bible's our authority, right? God's able. He tells him, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Isn't Jesus helping Peter? What's about to happen to Peter? We just got a couple more verses. What's going to happen to Peter? Bad day, right? Rooster starts crowing. Bad days coming for Peter. Peter, watch and pray. Submit yourself to the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord. Doesn't Peter have something to say about this? What's he say? What's he say? Submit yourself to God and do what? Resist the devil, and what's he do? He'll flee. What was the first part? Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. Lord man we got to do we got to we got to learn and, and gain what it is that god has for us in the garden again he went away and prayed what's it say and he did what he spoke the same words you ever feel weird when you you feel like you're praying the same thing all the time no oh i don't want to pray i'm i don't i'm not going to pray no more because i just keep having to pray the same thing and and i don't want to pray the same thing well here's good news jesus did the same thing He prayed the same words. He went, met with him, went over here, prayed again. Went, talked to him again, went over, prayed the same words. Prayed the same words. Prayed the same words. That's not vain uh, repetition. That's opening up the depths of your heart and letting what's in it out. And God doesn't expect you to fake what's in there and say it's not there no more. He wants you to come humbly lay that stuff down and dump it out. And let him deal with it. Let him fix it. Let him do his work in your life, his perfect work. Then in verse 41, it comes the third time and he says, Are you still sleeping, resting? It is enough. You know what that means? It's over. Time's up. No more time. No more opportunity for you to be submitting to God that you might resist the devil. Time's over. 600 Roman soldiers with torches were standing right in front of them. Judas leading the way. It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. The betrayer's here. What is God's call to us in Colossians 4? 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Continue earnestly in prayer. Coming before the Lord. Is it wrong to ask God for stuff? No, it says in James, in, in the book of James, they say, You have not because you? Yeah, so what are we supposed to do? Ask. I don't got to be afraid to ask. And I've laid my hands on a lot of people with cancer and prayed God healed. I'm okay. God takes care of of it. But I'm not afraid to ask. Why would I be like that? When David was on the ground praying for his child that God said was going to die. Don't you think he was praying that God would heal his child? Sure he was. But when the child went home, what did David do? He got up. Your will be done. He washed. He washed. He ate, he lived his life, and he held on to the promise that one day he would see him again. In Luke 18.1, this is what Jesus said, he spoke a parable to the people that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Part of that work of redemption that God's doing is the the gift that we have, this gift of prayer that we struggle with and we fight with and we don't comprehend and the enemy attacks us in that place. Why? Because he's just happy if you'll stop. Just don't do it. What doesn't he want you to do? He doesn't want you to submit to God. He doesn't want you to go before the Lord in an attitude of humility. He doesn't want you to seek His face. He doesn't want God to empower you. He doesn't want the Holy Spirit to give you the strength that you need to face the struggles that are in front of you. He doesn't want you to do any of that. So He whispers in your ear, It doesn't change anything. What's the point? And you let Him win. And that's not what Christmas was about. Don't you see, Jesus came to deliver the death blow to Satan. The proto-evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel, is simply this, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent is going to bite his heel. One of those is bad, crushed head. One of those, not quite as bad as you might think, bit heel. The cross is the bit heel. The cross and the resurrection and the ascension is the crushed head. Satan doesn't have any power. He just has lips. He likes to talk. You ever met people like that? They can't really do it, but they got a lot of things they like to say. And to me, really, that's that's Satan. He's good at getting you to believe his lies, isn't he? What power did he exhibit over Eve? A lie. A lie. Don't listen to the lies. This time of year, sometimes people struggle, right? Anybody ever struggle during Christmas time? Everybody else is happy. I'm miserable. Well, I just give you a perfect Christmas sermon for that. (laughs) What's the point? Humble yourself before God. Seek his face. Do what Jesus did. And you'll have what you need to finish your race with joy. Hebrews chapter 12, 2 and 3. Looking unto Jesus... The author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, did what? endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't like it. Then what does the writer of Hebrews tell us? So, if you're struggling, consider him, look at Jesus. <coughs> Follow him. He shows us the way through. Amen. Amen. Won't you stand with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have that we can come before you. God, that we can glorify who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray, God, that we would recognize and and we might just be able to to, to take away from from the message this morning that the idea that this gift that God has given, the redemption of man, is the completed work. I said He takes... Broken men, by giving His Son as a child and living His life sinlessly in sinless perfection and being offered as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Dying, being raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father. By going through and accomplishing those things, what You have wrought is the ability, Lord God, to take us and give us beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You make us new. And it's our prayer this morning that men and women would just submit themselves to God in their garden, in the Gatshmone at the Olive Press, where the pressure is so great. And allow God to do his perfect work. Because he makes me new. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.